rejected nonetheless. And then he once again calls together the 12 and sends them out. So there's kind of a link there. So in terms of the big picture, in those signs, those four sign stories we looked at, uh, we saw mixed response. Okay, uh, the disciples were fearful. Uh, the man who was plagued by demons uh, rejoices. He falls at Jesus' feet and worships. Uh, the people in the town are terrified, and they send Jesus away. But the man goes about preaching in that area uh, and perhaps bears fruit. Uh, the woman has faith. Jairus, his daughter, his wife have faith, but they're charged to be quiet about it. So there's not public acclaim. So there's kind of mixed responses. Nevertheless, you could say the trajectory is up, up, and away. Okay, It's great teaching in these parables, great uh, signs that Jesus is doing. It looks like he's on the road to victory. And yet, he comes now to his hometown and encounters a lack of faith. So there's this up and down. And then the sending out of the 12, not to steal Nate's thunder, Nate's going to teach in a couple weeks, but it's another one of these Mark sandwiches where Mark begins a story and then puts another story in the middle of it. He begins the story of the 12 apostles being sent out. And then in the middle of that is the story of John the Baptist being beheaded. It clearly happened earlier. Um, and yet Mark tells that story here more elaborately than any other gospel tells that story. And then the disciples come back and they say, listen to all these great things we've been doing. And there's Mark's making a warning here that the path to discipleship does involve God doing mighty works, but it also involves even death uh, for uh, the cause. So the uh, chapter six, Mark is, I'm not quite sure what the analogy to use is, putting in speed bumps. Don't get too excited. There's, this is good stuff. And yet there's also hardship that comes with the path of discipleship. We're going to read 6, 1 through 13 together now. And then uh, I'm going to focus on 6, 1 through 6. I'll make some comments on him calling and sending the 12. But I think Nate will also pick that up some uh, in two weeks when he teaches. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Hosea, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust 
that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word. This chapter begins with a journey home, a trip home. There's an awkwardness to going home if you've uh, left home perhaps for college or for a job and then you come back home, it can be awkward. Uh, Perhaps you came home and were a bit obnoxious, a little condescending, a bit of a know-it-all. On the other hand, perhaps you've gone out into the world, you have some life experience, you've been paying bills yourself, and yet you come home and your relatives and family friends still treat you like a child. And that also can be awkward and a bit uncomfortable. In Jesus' case, it's clearly the latter. It's not that Jesus is being obnoxious or condescending, but rather the people in Nazareth want to still treat him like a child. The first verse, there's a bit of interesting narration there. It says, Jesus decided to go home. Jesus went to his hometown and the disciples followed him. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what to make of that. It sounds a bit like he decided, I need to go home for a bit. And they are kind of looking at each other and, well, I guess we'll go too. We don't really have anything else to do right now. Um, I think they come a bit like the tagalongs maybe at Thanksgiving that come home with college students uh, uh, to his hometown. Nazareth is 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, which is, seems to be Jesus' uh, current base or where he's, he's uh, uh, doing his ministry out of at this period. So 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee, heading towards the Mediterranean. Nazareth is not mentioned in any early Jewish literature or Roman literature. It seems to be a fairly unknown place. Little to comment on. The first churches were only built there in the time of the Emperor Constantine, who made the Roman Empire Christian and set up churches at important sites. Uh, Archaeologists have since dug underneath the floors of some of those churches and discovered that Nazareth in Jesus' day seemed to have been a fairly obscure hamlet, about 60 acres. The houses seemed to be packed earth by and large, uh, and maybe 500 people at the most lived in this little town. Okay, so Jesus is going home to small town. Following his typical practice, verse 2 tells us that when the Sabbath day came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Uh, We've seen Jesus regularly teaching in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. So far, so good. In fact, if we look back at chapter 1 briefly, in verses 27 and 28, uh, we hear that Jesus is, is in Capernaum on the Sabbath day. He's in the synagogue teaching. He rebukes this evil spirit, and we hear the response. They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. There's a parallel in those responses. Uh, They're amazed. They're astonished at his teaching. And then they have questions. But in verses 2 and 3 here, there's a twist. They ask five questions. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? 
How are mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't his family here? Uh, The Greek, it's a bit strange. They don't say, uh, where did Jesus get these things? What's he been off doing that he learned all these things? But they say this man, uh, we could paraphrase it something like this. Where does this guy get this stuff? What is this wisdom given to this guy and the miracles that keep happening through his hands? Isn't this guy that carpenter? That's kind of the language they're using here. It's a bit abrupt or even rude. Okay, so they ask five questions. I want to slow down here for a second. Uh, Interestingly, in these questions, we have quite a bit of biographical detail about Jesus. Uh, And if you've grown up in the church, it's familiar to you. And yet this is one of the key passages for getting some of this biographical information. I wonder, inferring from these questions, what do you see about Jesus? Uh, Biographical information here. He's a carpenter. Yeah, so some of the other Gospels refer to Joseph being a carpenter um, and him being Joseph's son, and and we can assume that he learned that trade from his father, but I I believe this is the only passage where Jesus himself is explicitly identified as being a carpenter. Yeah. Yeah. I promise I'm not paying Dan to set up these questions. <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was a, uh, uh, the term, maybe builder would be the better term. Um, and it, it could refer to stonemasonry or carpentry with wood. So it's, it's the term builder um, and the material could, the material determines what type of building they're doing. Um, uh, yep. To Joseph as well. I think it's the same term. Yeah. Um, so the houses seem to be packed dirt in Nazareth. So stonemasonry perhaps would be some of that, but he could also be building wooden furniture, you know, tables, that sort of thing, cups for the, um, you know, some cups and vessels, bowls would be made out of wood as well. So, um, uh, handles for tools, hose, um, uh, is it a hoe that goes behind an ox? What is a, a plow? That's the word I'm thinking of. Plows have wooden, wooden pieces. So there's wood, you know, wood used in all sorts of implements that would, would need carpentry as well. Yeah. Carpenter. Yeah. So it, um, yeah, that's, it, it's, it probably cuts a number of ways. Um, in one rabbinic source, uh, a father owes a few things to his son, um, circumcision, there's, uh, finding a bride if necessary and teaching him a trade. Um, so in, in, uh, the rabbinic perspective, it's a perfectly respectable trade to be in. Um, on the other hand, uh, tend to look down on carpentry. Um, and it's hard to know exactly what to make of that. In the nature of the case, the sources we have are by the literate, by the people who read and write, which tends to, like in our own day, the upper crust looks at people with calluses on hands. That just seems to be, um, we should make a flippant in this. It really is a pejorative for people that do manual labor. Um, uh, so, yep. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, does that make sense what I'm saying? At least some portions of Greco-Roman society looked down on carpenters. Others probably didn't have any prejudice. Other biographical information there. Yeah. Lots of brothers and sisters. Were you gonna say the same thing, John? No. Oh, okay. So, yeah. He's teaching. Yeah. They do recognize that it's wisdom and that's interesting. They say this is wise teaching and yet they're going to reject it. That's a funny <laughs> What does that make you if you reject wise teaching? Uh, 
Uh, brothers and sisters. Yeah, so there's four brothers here. Uh, we know of James, certainly, from the book of Acts and the letter that James wrote. Uh, uh, one of these names, um, which I think is Judas here, is the same as uh, or, or similar, close enough, that it, it's Jude uh, who perhaps wrote the book of Jude. Um, there's some questions there, but at least two of these brothers are known elsewhere in the New Testament. On the other hand, um, Jose, Joseph, however this name is, um, I think some NIV maybe has it as Joseph, uh, and Simon are not known elsewhere. And then he has sisters, plural, at least two. So Jesus seems to be the oldest of at least, uh, what does that make it, seven kids? Yeah. Um, And there's interesting questions there. He's referred to as the son of Mary. Now, there's, it's not exactly clear why he's called the son of Mary. Um, there's a couple options. Typically, if someone's referred to by their mother, it's because their mother is more well-known than their father. Um, so uh, uh, I'm trying to think. I don't, can't think of their names off the top of my head, but David's nephews who are in his military in First in, in and Second Samuel are referred to by their mother's name because the mother is David's sister, and so that's the... Uh, more famous sibling, you know, that's the identifying feature, that that's how they connect to David. Um, but Mary in the Christian tradition is probably more famous than Joseph, but apart from that is not. So is that why they're saying this here? It's not clear. Um, one popular view is that, uh, or, or, or one often repeated view, although I'm not sure that there's a lot, one view is that it's, it's insinuating something questionable about Jesus's parentage. We know he's Mary's son, but we don't know if he's Joseph's son. Um, Maybe, maybe not. Perhaps Joseph has died, but John seems to assume he's alive. Uh, yes, it's not exactly clear why. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, so there, certainly that is a possibility. Um, there's stronger language to use if they wanted to outright question his, um, his, his, his parentage. Uh, and Mark elsewhere doesn't make anything of the virgin birth. He doesn't deny it, but he simply doesn't have anything about the virgin birth or, or the birth at all of Jesus. So um, it, it's not exactly clear what to make. Uh, certainly later Jewish sources uh, raise exactly that. They say, well, actually, um, Mary got pregnant out of wedlock with a Gentile named Pandera, I don't know why that's his name, but uh, some kind of Gentile, and that's the, the, the claim about Jesus. Um, it is interesting. We know two of these brothers then become leaders in the church. We don't know what became of the other brothers. Do they believe in Jesus after his resurrection? What of the sisters? Do they join the way uh, or not? Uh, some interesting questions there. Any other biographical information you see? Sorry, John, you had your hand up a second ago. Didn't, didn't, don't they think that Jesus so, sorry, a little... Well, it, that could be, um, although some phrases in the Gospel of John seem to imply that Joseph is still alive during Jesus' ministry. Um, it, it, if he had died much earlier, you know, so that no one knew Joseph anymore, it's 20 years on, then that would make sense to refer to him as Mary's kid. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, probably it's general rudeness, but it's not exactly sure. Um, are they saying, are they implying he's not Joseph's son? Um, oh, the one other thing that to mention as long as we're 
uh, going to and fro on, on things is uh, in Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic tradition, of course, Mary remains perpetually a virgin uh, at, even after Jesus' birth. And so these other kids are Joseph's children. And so when they say uh, Mary's son, what they're meaning is that this one is Joseph and Mary's son, as opposed to the others that are Joseph's children from a different marriage. Um, that's certainly possible, although when Joseph goes down to Bethlehem to register, we don't hear anything about other children going with him. Um, that, so if we bracket that part of the question out, um, could Joseph have other kids? Certainly possible. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, and perhaps that makes sense of this language. The other question about is Mary perpetually a virgin, it, it, has a, it brings with it this sort of um, Middle Ages skepticism about sex that's just not healthy part of Christian tradition and certainly not a biblical part of Christian tradition. So that part of that whole interpretation we should push back against and say, no, Mary and Joseph had a normal marriage uh, with all that that involves. Um, uh, okay, so the questions bring up interesting biographical information, but it's also interesting where the questions lead. In and of themselves, these are all reasonable questions, and in some ways not that different from some of the questions asked in chapter 1. They're saying, where did he get this from? And that, that's the same question in chapter 1. He teaches this one with authority. In and of themselves, they are not unreasonable questions, and indeed, they are questions that Christians all ask. Where did Jesus get these things, this teaching from? Where is this wisdom given to him from? How are these mighty works done through his hands? Is he not the carpenter? Is he not the son of Mary? Are these not his siblings? Those kinds of questions actually get you a long ways on the path towards a healthy Christology, a healthy understanding of who Jesus is. Where does he get his teaching from? Meditating on scripture. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, as Luke says, uh, and also he is the son of God. And so we see the divine. How are these mighty works done through his hands? Because he's fully God and yet, isn't he Mary's son? Yes, he's fully human. So these questions in and of themselves are not unreasonable questions to ask and ponder. But what's interesting in this case is they simply ask these questions and don't chase them up any farther. Instead, we're told at the end of verse 3, they took offense at him. Uh, the same word, uh, we get our English word scandal from the Greek word scandal on here. They were scandalized by it. That's the end of the matter for them. They, they're not interested in chasing up. How did Jesus get this wisdom? How are these mighty works being done? They just say, nope, uh, this is not. We already have a category for Jesus. We've labeled him in such and such a way. You know, he's the kid from around the block. We know what he's like. And that's all we know about him or want to know about him. So they take offense at him. And I think that uh, this really just picks up the same, uh, I think last week, Sunday morning, we talked about that Jesus is willing to answer questions and address questions, but when questions become excuses, it becomes a problem. And certainly that seems to be the case here. These questions become excuses. Jesus responds with this uh, proverb, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. Okay, uh, uh, and that proverb is used in other Jewish literature. It's also used in various, you know, slightly different forms in ancient Greco-Roman literature as well. So it's a widely used proverb. Uh, you know, you may be on the championship basketball team, but you still need to do the dishes, okay, you're, when you're at home. That, that doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter how good you are at basketball, you still have your chores to do at home. That seems to be the sense here is, yeah, you might be a 
prophet, well-regarded roundabout in your teaching, but when you come home, you're still the kid from home. Uh, There's no honor to it. And then verse 5 is, in some ways, one of the strangest verses in the Gospel of Mark. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Matthew explicitly saying he can't do the mighty, any mighty works because of their lack of faith. And Matthew, certainly that makes sense. It picks up on these four um, sign narratives that we have been looking at the last few weeks. One of the themes there is, uh, woman, your faith has made you healed. Uh, to Jairus and the mother, don't be afraid, only have faith. And there is this uh, dynamic where Jesus is doing the work and yet the people need to trust, to have faith, to believe. Uh, and the flip side of that here, the people don't believe. Uh, instead, they're scandalized. In verse 6, it's going to say he marvels at their unbelief. And somehow that limits what Jesus can do. But Mark doesn't say specifically he's limited because of their lack of faith. It simply says he couldn't do, uh, he could do no mighty works there. And what does that mean to say Jesus can't do something? It's a bit of a strange thing to ponder. Well, Mark throughout emphasizes that Jesus, though fully God, is also fully man. In chapter 4, remember, we saw him weary after a long day teaching and falling asleep in the boat. In chapter 13, we're going to see him uh, saying he doesn't know things. In chapter 14, we see him afraid. And here we see him apparently deflated and disappointed at the lack of faith, the lack of belief in his hometown. So it's, it, it, it's, what does this mean that Jesus is restrained? I think it's tied up with his humanity, at least in part. But at the same time, it also raises questions because it says he could do no mighty works there, except he did lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And you think, well, that sounds to me like quite a mighty work. Uh, it, it's a bit similar to um, in the first Corinthians when Paul's talking about, I'm glad that I didn't baptize anyone there except for so-and-so and so-and-so's household and a few others that maybe I don't remember. But basically, I didn't baptize anyone while I was in Corinth. It's a bit like that, that it's saying he could do no mighty works there, except for a few mighty works that are just off to the side. Um, so, so it is a funny dynamic there. And then rather than the people being amazed at Jesus, Jesus himself is amazed by their unbelief. And here's the heart of the problem, and it's a heart problem. The problem at the heart that we need to deal with is not individual sins, this and that wrong thing, okay? It's not the people in Nazareth who are well-known liars or stealers or something like uh, thieves, I guess. Thieves? There's the word. Uh, they weren't well-known for being thieves or violent or some kind of individual sins. The pro- heart problem is unbelief. And for each of us, yes, it manifests in individual sins and wrong acts, but the heart problem is unbelief. How would you respond to this sort of setback? Okay, if our church, things are going well for a season, and then we run into a season where people are just saying, you know, I'm not having it, not interested. Uh, and how would you respond? Yeah, Jan. Prayer, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, prayer, God can change hearts. Yeah, giving up. Yeah, feeling deflated, and, and perhaps Jesus feels that way here. It is interesting to see what tactic he takes then. He goes on a preaching tour, teaching among the villages nearby, 
And then he decides this is the time to send out the 12 apostles to teach. Now, has anything about the 12 apostles so far made you think these guys are ready to be teaching and going out on their own? Particularly in Mark's gospel, the, the apostles aren't bad guys. The disciples aren't bad guys. But Mark is more than willing to have a laugh at their expense. Okay, we saw them in the boat, uh, fearful, afraid of Jesus. Uh, some of the apostles, but not all of them, went with him when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. When Jesus is trying to figure out who touched him, they're saying, don't, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Let's just keep going. There's people all around in the crowd. They seem to be missing the point. Uh, he teaches in parables, and he asks them, don't you get the point of these parables? And they're like, well, not yet. Keep Keep telling us uh, we're, we want to keep working at it. But so far, these do not look like people that I would send out uh, on a teaching tour. Uh, 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 but nevertheless, that's Jesus' strategy here. There's a lot to comment on in verses 7 through 13. I just want to pick out one dynamic here, this basic dynamic to comment on. And then, as I mentioned, it is tied together with the John the Baptist story. And so uh, I... I'll leave it open for Nate to come back to as much as he wants to in the coming uh, uh, next time we meet together. Notice the basic dynamic in verse seven. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. He calls and then sends, or you could say, if you like alliteration, he summons and then sends. Uh, Paul Williams, in his book, Exiles on Mission, I've referenced it a few times. Uh, it was quite helpful for First Peter, but a good book all around, if you're interested, how Christians can thrive in a post-Christian world. Uh, he draws attention to the way the language of calling is used in the Bible. Biblically, uh, or, or the way we use the language of calling doesn't always match the way the Bible uses the language of calling. We would say, so-and-so is called to be a pastor, so-and-so is called to be a missionary, or they're called to be a firefighter or a banker, whatever that. That's kind of the way we use it. Um, in fact, the language of uh, the term vocation uh, is from the Latin word for calling, saying this is my vocation, this is my calling. Well, in the Bible, by and large, you are not called to X, Y, or Z, but calling is a salvation word. You are called to Jesus. You are called to discipleship. And so every single Christian is called. The Bible uses different languages or different metaphors for this. Uh, one is the, the image of the kingdom of God. And so we're called to a new citizenship in the kingdom. Another is the image of a family. And so we're called to be members of a family, to be adopted. The call to Jesus then involves discipleship. It's a call to follow Jesus. And we're going to see that language of following Jesus is a ripe metaphor in Mark's gospel of walking along with Jesus as an image for discipleship. In the language of the kingdom of God, it's learning the rights and responsibilities as a citizen of the kingdom. In the language of, uh, of the family of God, it's learning the new family identity, the family history, the family tree, uh, how we behave in our family. Uh, using... Outside of the images, we might say that this discipleship process is detaching from the influence of cultural stories and becoming fully embedded in God's own story that he's telling about the world. So it's a call to Jesus and to discipleship to follow Jesus that all Christians have, 
But then the call, the, the, the opposite side of that dynamic is a calling to Jesus and a sending out, a commissioning. Here Jesus sends out the 12 apostles and he gives them authority over unclean spirits. They proclaim to all the people that they speak to that they should repent. They cast out demons and heal the sick. They're given authority, so they act as authorized agents. They act with uh, not their own authority, but they're delegates. They're sent to exercise Jesus' authority. The same sort of image is picked up at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, that the disciples are all sent out into all the world to make disciples. We're not exactly in the same position as the apostles, but each of you are called to Jesus. Okay, you have been called. And the fact that I'm a pastor and you are not, that some of you are elders, others are not, that is a relative distinction. The fundamental reality is that each one of us have equally been called. And each of us have been sent because we are called to be Christians. That is people who are little Christs, who mirror Christ, reflect Christ, who act as his delegates who are authorized to speak the good news about Jesus on his behalf. And so it's a way of reframing how we think about our lives. If you're a student at school, if you're working outside of the home, if you're working in the home, if you're volunteering, in each of those places you go, you are sent. You are acting as Christ's ambassador going into those places. So I think this image here for us is quite rich that we are called and sent and authorized. He tells them not to take anything except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on a tunic. Perhaps there is some allusions back to the Exodus, the Passover, leaving with your tunic on. They're told that there's a sign. When you enter a house, stay there. But if a place will not receive you, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. We see then again, not only are they um, given authority over spirits, but in a sense they act with Jesus's own authority. We saw this morning that Jesus comes as a king who is divisive based on how people respond to him. And likewise, he's saying his apostles, uh, apostle means sent, uh, these 12 that are sent specifically by Jesus, how people respond to them determines how they stand vis-a-vis Jesus. So he says, if they reject you, shake the dirt off your sandals and go on to the next town. Um, There's uh, an opportunity, and yet the opportunity doesn't last forever. So they proclaim people should repent. They cast out demons. They anoint many with oil who were sick and healed them. So far, so good. But we're going to see discipleship is not just victories. There's downsides as well. Any last comments before we turn to prayer? Yeah, Jan. That's kind of like the way Jesus Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, what a great observation. So Nazareth doesn't accept Jesus, so he goes off teaching around at the villages and he sends his disciples off to other villages round about. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great a great observation. Yeah, Albert. Yeah. And then he sends the disciples out to heal. Were miracles only, could he only 
perform when there was faith? Because he, he did say your faith has healed you. Yeah. Or did he just heal people in order for them to come to faith? Yeah. In terms of can we order it neatly and it always follows the same pattern, I'm not exactly sure we can do that. But it's clear that there's always a nexus or a web of connected things. And so Jesus doesn't just heal people who then go off and do their own thing and say, thanks, so long, here's some money, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And in fact, in Acts, when people try and buy the power to do miracles, they're rebuked for that, that it's saying you have a wrong conception here. This isn't just magic. Um, So it is about restoring we talked about with the woman and, and Jerry's daughter, it's about restoring to the larger community uh, and also bringing to faith in Jesus. And so if they've already said, nope, not going to believe, not interested, there's no point in doing mighty works then. Um, and I think the other thing that we have to say is that mighty works themselves can't be the grounds for our belief, that the miracles, signs, that can't be the grounds for belief. Um, in Deuteronomy, we talked about that a bit. There's this interesting thing where it's saying, if a prophet comes and tells you to go another way besides the way that you're learning from me, even if that prophet does all sorts of mighty signs, if they say, worship another God, stone him to death. So there's a recognition that people can work signs. Um, and I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, sometimes it's surely fraud. Sometimes perhaps there is some inexplicable element to it. But that in and of itself is not proof that you're speaking for the one true God. Um, uh, so if they've already closed the door on belief, doing signs isn't going to help or mighty deeds. Does that get it? Well, that's the implication that he was part Yeah. 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 It's a funny story, too, because the lepers, because they're, I think he tells them to go present themselves to the priest. So they're doing what he told them to, but yeah. Yeah, uh, you could see. Yeah. And so I was really, um, and, and obviously that's a little contradictory to the demoniac, right? Because, well, I mean, he may have realized that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that woman and Jarius have both bottomed out. Uh, they come from different spots, but they're both. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and later when the. Uh, he's saying what they want a sign. He's saying, what kind of more sign do you want? And you're thinking, we've seen all these miracles walking through the gospel. What indeed, what, what sign could convince them if they're committed to not believing? Yeah. Uh, Dan.
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, in 1, 15, uh, 14 and 15, is kind of the summary statement. John's arrept, arrested. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And the sort of summary of the gospel of God is, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Um, and I think probably... I. Uh, Somewhere we talked about repentance, I guess, as being the fruit that's looked for, I think, in the parable of the sower, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I know we've talked about repentance one other time in Jesus' preaching. I think, uh, without over-reading it, I think probably the sense is that there's something a little bit deficient in their preaching. So it's it's not, or, or, or not deficient in the sense of it's not a full... Jesus is preaching, repent and believe the good news. The time is at hand. They get the repent part. Okay, at least we can make sense of that. Um, John the Baptist, not in uh, Mark's gospel, but in other gospels, it's saying it's a baptism for repentance. Um, uh, So there does seem to be that John, the disciples, they're doing that same sort of thing. And yet, maybe they don't fully understand what the fullness of time has come, the kingdom is here, what that means. So they maybe can't say the positive side. They can't explain the positive side as fully as they will be able to after the death and resurrection. Uh, I, that's my sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> after, yeah, Pentecost. Oh, yep, yep, yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, that there's, yeah, he won't repent get rid of him yeah um i repent in it uh, that term in itself though and I, i'm trying to remember where i taught this maybe it's in luke i know i've talked about it in the last month or so but that term in itself does include turning from one way but also reorienting towards another way so in itself it can be a catch-all for repent and believe and yet that mark earlier said jesus preached repent and believe and here the disciples proclaim or preach repent and that last part is missing, does seem to be a um, more than just incidental omission there. Um, sorry, I'm saying that more complicated than I need to be. <laughs> say it. <laughs> These are great comments, guys. Uh, but let's turn to our time of prayer now um, before the hour gets too late.